Welcome to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast with your host, Dr. Dana Pung, and myself, Dr. Elise Hutt. Join us as we talk to inspiring clinicians who have redefined their careers. Today, I welcome to the show Dr. Ben Bravery. Dr. Bravery started out as a zoologist and science communicator before making a career pivot to medicine, sparked on by a life-changing experience he had on the patient side of the healthcare system. He's currently undertaking psychiatry training and has managed to juggle this with writing and publishing his book, The Patient Doctor, which reflects his commitment to advocating for change in Australia's healthcare system. Welcome to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast, Dr. Ben Bravery. Hi, thank you. We're so excited to have you with us today. I know a bit about you, but for anyone that doesn't know what you're currently doing and your story of how you got into medicine, can you give us a quick rundown? Yeah, totally. I'm PGY5 and I am a psychiatry registrar working in Sydney, rotating every six months through a variety of terms. I'm still kind of in the general training, so it's five years. I have to say that because most people don't know. It's five years for psychiatry training and I'm two and a half years in and there are general years. And then in the last two, you can choose to subspecialize. So I've got to make that decision soon. Nice. Halfway. Have you got yeah. an inkling of what you want to specialize in? Yeah, I'm drawn to child and adolescent psychiatry, which is not something expected to be drawn to, but just really into development and the growing and developing brain and family units and the idea of a child in an ecosystem and habitat and all that kind of stuff. Because as you alluded to, I did stuff before medicine. And I think that's a good fit of how I think and how I feel about things. Interesting. And what did you do in your life before medicine? Yeah, so it was habitat and ecosystems. <laughs> it was, I was a zoologist. I'd done a Bachelor of Science with honours in zoology in Queensland, where I'm from, at UQ, and then took that in a number of places. I worked for the Environment Department in Canberra, and then that was a little bit disheartening, I guess, because I'd gone in quite idealistic, quite green, and thought that I'd be saving coral and <laughs> protecting rainforests. And it was really just about rubber stamping development applications and checkbox the next mine. And, and that kind of got me down a bit. But it did take me to Kakadu, um, which was excellent. And I got to work with the Office of the Supervising Scientist monitoring the uranium mine up there for environmental pollution. And after a year at the department, it felt... Like I needed to expand my thinking about how to bring about conservation and the protection of animals because that was really what I was fired up about. So I moved next door in Canberra to Questacon, which some of your listeners may know is the National Science and Technology Centre. And I joined their science circus, which meant I learnt how to talk to people of all ages, mainly school groups, but also right up to adulthood about scientific concepts and the best way to frame scientific debates. I did that for a year. And then I took myself off to China, which is quite random in hindsight, and was a youth ambassador for development and ended up working on a, a species of deer on an island off the coast of southern China as a youth ambassador. And I did that for a year. And then I took myself to Beijing because this was 2007, 2008, which is the Olympics. In China, it was a massive time. There was just so much energy and optimism and they were opening up in all kinds of new ways 
and science was a big part of the Chinese agenda. And I found myself working for the Chinese Academy of Science, which is like our CSIRO, but about 500 times bigger. And I mean, my little institute of zoology alone is probably the equivalent of our entire CSIRO. And I found myself running a peer-reviewed journal and working for a professional society of zoologists. And that led to all kinds of knowledge about Chinese animals and ecosystems. And most famously, I learned a great deal about the giant panda which is everyone's favorite mammal. Well, if it's not, it should be. What's your favorite fact about the giant panda? Oh, there's so many. I think like it's hard to talk about the giant panda without defending them because there's a myth out there that they're probably like a dead-end species and <laughs> that they're so specialized on bamboo. They don't get much energy out of their food source. They don't like each other. They don't mate and all this kind of stuff. But it's, it's not like that at all. They're just a highly specialized bear. I mean, it's kind of cool, right? They are basically a carnivore that's learnt to eat exclusively plants. And the way they've done that actually is by hosting a whole range of specialized bacteria in the gut that mean they basically have a digestive system similar to you and me but they're herbivores. And the way they've been able to do that is to co-opt a whole bunch of bacteria, a microbiome that live throughout different parts of their gut and are super specialized at digesting bamboo. But the thing is, they get a bad rap because if you put two of them in a concrete cage, they don't tend to you know, jump at each other. And that's because they have quite a complicated signaling system. And of course, that's what would happen. But in the wild, the way I think about it, it's a little bit like Snapchat in the sense that they create these signals that don't really last that long and they like to communicate indirectly. And so they have these trees which they mark with urine. The male kind of does, if your listeners can visualize, they do a reverse handstand. So like the arms, the front limbs are down on the ground, the back limbs, the legs basically walk up this tree trunk and then they try and get as high as they can and then they spray it with urine and, and some other scents. And then the females come along and they do a, a handstand. So the feet are on the ground and now the front paws are climbing up the tree and they smell it. And that's kind of how they talk to each other. You know, they, they're kind of like introverts in a way. They're like indirect communication, nothing too confrontational. And if you let them do their thing, they're quite happy to socialize when they need to and reproduce. But that's a long way of saying, I think they're judged rather poorly <laughs> by people. And I think that's because we're trying to put them in zoos and breed in really unnatural conditions. But if you leave them alone, they'll do their thing. That's incredible. I think I'm going to enter, enter a panda rabbit hole after this. I need to <laughs> sorry about that. This. <laughs> yeah, I am sorry about that. You can Google the handstand. There's some good videos on it. I also love that you've compared that to Snapchat. <laughs> Urinating in a handstand, same as Snapchats, the same level of communication. I do need to disclose I was born in the 80s. I'm 42. So I don't have a good understanding of Snapchat. I've never used it. I may be way off with what it's no, intended. No, I think that's spot on. Is it? Okay, that's the great. sort of content that people are sending around. <laughs> so how did you get from that into medicine? Oh, wow. The short version is bowel cancer. I was 28 and I got diagnosed with stage three colorectal cancer. So I had a big lesion in the sigmoid. It had evolved over time and what I now know are textbook symptoms slowly crept up and it started as diarrhea and constipation, bowel changes, a bit of cramping, then some weight loss, 
then night sweats, then I was bleeding into the toilet bowl. And not every time I went to the toilet. It's not like I ignored this every day for months. It would just happen every now and then. And there was no real pattern to it. I grew pale. I fainted a couple of times. And it wasn't till I could no longer explain away my symptoms. I mean, it's not uncommon for expats living in China to have gastro and, and bowel problems. And I was a sucker for the corner restaurant that I probably shouldn't have been eating at, but the food was so delicious. And I traveled all over the country and ate everything I could find. It wasn't that weird. And expats would gather at the bar on a Friday night and exchange poo stories. But eventually, it just got too hard to justify. And I Googled it. And when you're 28 and you're otherwise fit and healthy and have never really been sick and don't have a family history of bowel cancer, a bit of blood is hemorrhoids. And that's what I'd convinced myself I had until I was random. I was learning to snowboard in northeast Beijing. And I must have just tumbled over and over one day because I'm not a particularly good snowboarder. I'm also not a particularly good skier. So I don't know why I thought I could do the, the snowboarding. And I had a huge bleed that night. And I just had to sit down and talk to my dad about it. He happened to be visiting me. And I had to dump on him. And then I had to unload on mom. And it was time to really face what was unfolding inside me. And that led me to a colonoscopy, which I just squeezed in, to be honest. I was coming back to Australia just to get a visa. It was a five-day trip. I was like, I'll just get a visa. Mum's like, Benjamin, don't be ridiculous. I've organized a colonoscopy for you. I still don't know how she did it. I got one and I never made it back to China. It started a cascade of treatment and admissions. And a year and a half later, I was declared no evidence of disease and sent back into the world. Wow, that's amazing. That hits so close to home for me as someone who is currently 28 with a family history of bowel cancer. But listening to that, even with a medical degree, I'd still think, oh, it's probably not. And I yeah. can see why you wouldn't have jumped on it. I feel like even in the medical world, there's two camps of people. There's the hypochondriacs that think that anything is <laughs> a major thing yeah. versus the people that just don't want to see a doctor because they think they know the answers. But mm. you don't think at 28 that you're going to have something like that. It must have been a huge, huge shock. It completely floored me. I can still go back there actually to the time. I don't think you forget a conversation like that, an event like that. Before I went under for my colonoscopy, the gastroenterologist had said, oh, is there anything you're particularly worried about? And I said, deep down, is this cancer? Is this thing really sinister? And to their credit, they're thinking, just like you've said, they're thinking probabilistically. They're like, that'd be the absolute last thing I expect to find. But it's the first thing they found. Smack bang there in the sigmoid was a an ulcerated lesion. And it was so large that they couldn't get the adult camera through that to retract and then use a pediatric scope. And I was very close to closing over and obstructing and it was bleeding and it looked awful and I saw photos of it. And then my whole world closed in so quickly. I'd been living in China for four years. I was building a business at that point in science communication, like helping Chinese researchers promote their work. I'd recruited a friend to come and work with me. I'd just fallen in love with a woman named Sana. We'd been together five months. Everything was forward-looking, ambitious, and hopeful, and it just collapsed into this really tiny world with this really big goal, which was to stay alive. Yeah, it's very different from the focus of most people at that age. 
how did that translate then into actually wanting to work in medicine? I feel like that is probably the last thing on most people's minds as they're on the patient <laughs> side of the experience. You're so right. It's funny, isn't it? In hindsight, I can come up with lots of justifications and reasons for it. Sometimes I even invoke some psychiatric concepts to explain why I've done it. I think at its core was I'd observed along the way during radiation and chemotherapy and then I had a very complicated ultra-low anterior resection. I had a lupuleostomy. I then started four, four and a half months of post-operative chemotherapy. I got bilateral PEs. I had multiple infections. Even the reversal, the lupuleostomy reversal was complicated by an abdominal infection. So I had lots of setbacks along the way and I got fantastic technical care. I can't fault it. We have an extraordinary world-class health system and I was treated in the public system and didn't pay a cent for it. I'm really grateful for that. But at some of the points, I noticed that while the technical care was exceptional, some of the humanity was missing. And it doesn't come down to individual nurses and individual doctors. It comes down to the system and how patients are treated and expected to navigate this system. It took me a while to really pull a bunch of these observations together. And I'd started volunteering at cancer charities and helping revise information books and starting peer support. But I wanted to do something in a substantial way. And I thought the way to do that actually is to go back into healthcare, into the health system, not as a patient, but as a doctor, because it seemed to me that the place had been built around them. They were kind of important in the scheme of things. And I thought I'd go in at that level I'll learn their language and the way they think about illness and the way they're taught to interact with patients. And I'll get inside their heads and then be able to talk to them and bring about some change maybe. And while I'm doing that, I'll be able to give back. I'll be able to look after people who are sick and try and influence their experience of illness in a small way. That's what I did. It didn't come together in, like I can describe it now in a minute, but it took a long time for me to work that out. When you spat back out, into the world after a major cancer diagnosis, you're expected to go about things as you did. And I tried that. I got a job in Sydney with a medical research facility doing science communication. And then I got a job at the WWF working back under the panda on conservation. Five, six, ten months into those roles, I got bored and frustrated and kept thinking about what else that I could be doing. And I actually took a year off to really think about it. And it was in that year that all this stuff coalesced and I decided that I had to go back in to healthcare in a big way. I'm interested to know how your journey through the healthcare system has changed that image that you had of it from the outside. I'm thinking of myself going through uni, med school, thinking, oh, I wouldn't ever get grumpy at people and treat people the way that I saw around me in the hospital. And then you work long shifts and you're treated badly all day and mm. you start to notice yourself not responding in the way that you would want to. How do you see the healthcare system differently now that you've worked in it or do you still see it the same way that you did before? My understanding of things is evolving and it's still evolving. I don't come from a family of doctors and I didn't have much understanding of the business of medicine and the business of doctoring. And I'd never been sick in a major way. So I had to learn how to be a patient and learn how to navigate healthcare. As a patient, I'd felt a kind of, at times, a lack of agency and 
I was confused and it felt like this world around me was spiraling on without me and I didn't understand a lot of the concepts and when they were explained to me and they didn't sink in because they weren't easy to understand and this stuff is technical. Sometimes I felt outright blamed for things. There was this one particular time during a ward round when I was recovering from ultra low anterior resection. I'd done really post-op, didn't even need intensive care, just a bit of monitoring and then I was back on the wards and the lines were coming out and I was getting up and I was out of bed and I was doing my breathing exercises and I was walking around the wards and then I, I just all of a sudden couldn't do that anymore and I spent more time in bed and I got drier and every time I tried to eat I would gag and this happened day after day and you know I ended up losing like 14 kilos post-op and my stoma was pumping out liters of this green sweet stuff all day long and I was miserable and the churn of the hospital just seemed to continue around me once you deviate from the path that's expected you, you get increasingly forgotten increasingly isolated and there's one ward round you know someone stood out from the pack. It was a big group. I didn't know who most of them were and, and pointed at me and said, if you don't start eating, we're going to put a tube down your throat. And I had no idea what the tube was for or why this person was threatening me with this tube. But I'd spent a couple of weeks in a four bed and I'd heard these tubes go down people's throats and then up again and then down again. And it was horrible for them and it sounded horrible for the clinicians and it was definitely horrible for me. I had this real fear of these tubes and in this confused sick state, the last thing I needed was a threat. It was like they thought maybe I wasn't eating and, or that I was choosing to be sick and I just obviously I wanted to get better. Nobody in that room had more skin in the game than me and it just occurred to me then that the person had forgotten that I was, you know, Ben and I was 29 and there was a lot more to me than the failed ultra-low anterior resection that hadn't been discharged in five days. There was much more going on for me, but nobody had asked. And they got swept along in the job of nursing and doctoring and providing care. When I crossed over, I saw that. I felt myself pulled into that system. It's so easy to get sucked into the grind and start to think about patients in certain ways, start to get distracted by KPIs that aren't relevant. And you're right, you are battling what is often a hostile system. The way we treat each other is not amazing. The way doctors treat nurses and vice versa is often less than ideal. Our rostering is intense. Our training program and the tension that it results in our day-to-day -day work is intense. And I'm now much more realistic about the pressures on the people who are trying to provide healthcare but to get back to your question, a lot of the factors are the same. As a med student, I felt disempowered. Sometimes I felt dehumanized, just like I had laying in that bed on that ward round. As a junior doctor, I have felt the same lack of agency, the same frustrations, the same inability to get my words out in a way because people don't have time or they're not interested or they don't ask. It's almost like I got to the end of my general training years and went, oh, the problem is the same everywhere and no one in the system seems to be happy. No one in the system seems to be thriving. And that's why I wrote the book, which came out last year called The Patient Doctor, because it's really pulling these two sides together and saying both sides of the healthcare equation are slightly unhappy with things and both of them want the same thing. And it's surprisingly similar 
that if you address both of those needs, you get happier doctors who provide better care and you get happier patients receiving better care. Absolutely. And I think the fact that you've written a book about it is excellent because it seems like everyone knows that there's a problem and not many people are doing much about it. Have you felt like you've been in a position to empower change or have you felt a bit helpless in the healthcare system? I felt both of those things, like just like you would have. Like every shift is an opportunity to do something and to make someone's life slightly less horrible and have a conversation in a way that sticks with someone and means they have a slightly different view of their illness or their experience or their treatment. But you're often at the behest of a much larger beast. I'd be lying if I said I nailed it every single day because I don't because I'm a human. I mean, that's part of my message in the book is doctors are people too. And I think a part of our education actually ignores that. And at its worst, it actually directly corrupts that. It was so striking during med school when I saw changes in my colleagues. You know, I saw slightly less empathy over time. I saw egos grow. I saw cynicism expand. I saw compassion fatigue. And I went to the literature and I did a PubMed (laughs) and these patterns were all known. I wasn't observing anything new. It doesn't matter which med school you look at, which country you look at. These patterns are as clear as day and they also happen in nursing and other health professionals. It just seemed obscene to me as a patient who had crossed over that they knew, the system knows that this is what happens to its juniors and they're not trying to fix it. And to me, that was the most eye-opening thing about crossing over. You know, it wasn't the anatomy and the physiology and the pharmacology, which I could learn. It was this understanding that the system actively changes you. And it often changes you in ways that leave you unhappy, the patients you're caring for unhappy, and the system unable to deliver the kind of care that everybody expects. I'm interested to hear a bit more about the book and the journey to becoming an author. Sounds like it was inspired by a want to bring about change, but had you thought about writing a book or considered yourself much of a writer before taking on this endeavor? No, and and it sounds funny, but I still don't identify as a writer. I think that's my own self-consciousness or imposter syndrome. I, I had noticed so these things I've been talking about had started to bubble up during med school. And I think there are lots of doctors who get sick, right? And there's lots of people who decide to become doctors because of families or connection to illness. But I went to med school having been a patient and I filtered everything through that lens. And as I was observing these changes in myself and my colleagues in med school and as I was on the wards, watching junior doctors and senior doctors and nurses and and sometimes behave inappropriately, I started to reflect and jot some things down. And I wrote a couple of articles, a couple for the ABC and one for The Guardian. And so I'd started to put these thoughts on paper in a way. And then the internship came and it was the day, the night before I was due to start on the ward. So we'd had orientation for a couple of weeks. And I was laying in bed and I was due to start in oncology, which I had preferenced because I went to med school to become an oncologist. And I'm laying in bed and I, you know, you're freaking out <laughs> the day before your actual first day as a doctor. I don't know about you, but I was terrified. Mm, and they didn't let I, people start on oncology in my network. So, yeah. 
<laughs> there you go. <laughs> I, I mean, I would have been nervous had it been any term, to be honest, because I just was like, you spend so much time honing the academic knowledge and the technical skills, but not a lot of time on the actual job. So I was a bit nervous about that, but I was just like, just generally quite nervous. And I'd had cancer and I was starting in a cancer ward. And by then I was five years out from cancer. It was a while, but when you close your eyes, it's like it was yesterday. I was laying in bed and I was ruminating and catastrophizing and doing all those things that we do because we're our type A's. And I sent a tweet, which was just like, ah, I'm completely freaking out. Tomorrow I start work in a cancer ward, having survived cancer and taking myself to med school. That was it. I wasn't trying to elicit anything in particular. I was just, I think these days we tend to share those things when they're happening whatever social media you use. And the next day I was rounding for the very first time and my pocket was exploding because the Twitter app was just on fire. And it ended up being shared like thousands and thousands of times. I think it peaked at about 20,000 likes or something. And there were all these messages flooding in like, you you can do it, go you, this is going to be amazing, it's going to be fine. I had to delete the Twitter app by lunchtime. (laughs) And then I got home that night and there was an email from an organization which I thought was called Hatchet, which is actually Hachette, which is one of the big five global publishers. And I'd actually deleted it because I thought it was spam. (laughs) And I said to my wife, I got this weird email today from this group, this Hatchet. And my wife's a journalist. She's like, you're such an idiot. That's Hachette. And show me the email. And I showed it to her. She's like, why is this in your trash? <laughs> so, I had to untrash it and reply to it. And it was a publisher at Hachette saying, I saw your tweet. We've looked at a couple of your articles. I think there might be a book here. Can you come in and meet us? So, I had this really weird introduction to medicine where I was learning to be an intern and terrified, but also having meetings about possibly writing a book about all that had happened and that all I thought may happen. And that's how the book came about. I'm really lucky. I know that's not a normal way that someone gets a book deal, but that's how I got a book deal. No, that's incredible. I love how organic it was. You're right. It's organic. It just kind of cascaded. And I think maybe if I'd tried, it probably wouldn't have happened. Just a sequence of events, the right people seeing the right things at the right time with the right emotions. And then they said to me, write a book. And I said, oh, do you think I can? I've not. I've only written an article, you know, maybe it's a thousand words. I don't know if I've got a hundred thousand words in me. And they'll be like, oh, we'll help you. <laughs> Off you go. <laughs> and so I did. How did you actually juggle that logistically between internship and everything else you're probably doing? Oh, it was so hard. I was talking to an intern the other day. I don't know about you, but Internship for me was amazing because I didn't love medical school. Like I did well in it and blah, 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 but I didn't love it. And I got to internship and all of a sudden that weight that we carry, which I now carry as a registrar of having to study and needing to think about exams and think about assessments and all the stuff that hangs over you lifts in internship, right? It's this amazing release where you can focus on the job and you don't have to be cramming every night and revising anatomy every night. You learn for fun because you're in the role and you want to do well at it. The last thing I wanted to do, Elise, was take on a major project and have something hanging over my head again. I was like, no way. I've at least got a year where I just want to be an intern. I just want to be a baby doctor and I don't want to have to be thinking about exams or thinking about masters or thinking about the next step. So, I actually delayed it for quite a while and procrastinated and put it off. 
And then I wrote a proposal, which was only the first three chapters. And I submitted that and they said, yeah, it's great. Go ahead and write the book. But then it took another year to pull it together because balance is hard, right? And medicine is a long game. I tell anyone coming after me that medicine is a long game. It's a marathon and you have to pace yourself. And so the risk was I would just throw myself into one thing over another and not have the time to do it well. I was very fortunate as a PGY3 to take a year off with a baby. My wife and I, Sana, the woman I'd met five months into my diagnosis. So we are married, we have a baby, he's three now. And I think part cancer, part I'd always wanted to be a dad. I just wanted a full year with him. And so I took a year off in PGY3 and it's doctors are so weird. I was like, oh, I'm going to start a master's and I'm going to sit the multiple choice exam for the college and I'm going to write the book and all this other stuff. And very quickly, I realized I just wanted to be a dad and I didn't want to have to do all that other stuff. But the compromise was I would spend Sundays. So I wrote the book on Sundays. I was dad Monday to Friday and we'd have family time on a Saturday and then I would write the book on a Sunday and I just slowly did it. I slowly chipped away at it. COVID helped because there wasn't a lot to do. <laughs> and then I just slowly chipped away and you just, it's a thousand words and it's 5,000 words, it's 50,000 words and you've written a hundred thousand words. How long did it take you all up? Yeah, probably took from like the tweet to the proposal and then finished the book probably took a year and a half to two years. That's decent. That's pretty quick. Didn't feel quick. (laughs) Considering you were doing it one day a week, maximum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the thing about writing is, and this is the thing that I think we have great skills as doctors and I love the idea behind your podcast because you can do all kinds of things with the skills we get, is we're very good at focusing on a task, breaking it down and just chipping away at it. I say to people like medicine's not rocket science, it's just focus. You just have to be capable of extreme periods of focus which does make us slightly odd, but means that people can learn those skills. And the book was like a big exam. It was like, I broke it down. I'm so nerdy. I made a spreadsheet. I tracked all my words. I predicted my success state. It was like I was preparing for an OSCE and I just had to belt it out step by step, page by page. And I just wrote. I tried not to be too critical. It's like, that's the thing about medicine. You know, we're very judgmental of each other, of ourselves, of our patients. And I just had to check all that away and just write. Some of it was good. Some of it wasn't very good, but I had to stay in that moment and just treat it a bit like a job that occasionally had some perks, (laughs) but mostly felt like a job. I'm going to go ahead and say that very few authors track their progress with a spreadsheet. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. It's slightly odd. (laughs) That feels extremely type A. (laughs) I'm getting my left and right brains confused right now, but whichever one the creative one is, it's not that. There's the left one. You're right. That's all left brain, that one. Yeah, Yeah, no. (laughs) How did you actually get opportunities to write your articles for things like the ABC in the first place? The very first time it happened, actually, I reached out to Sophie Scott, who for a time was the national medical reporter for the ABC, spanning TV and online. And I must have crossed paths with her at an event somewhere, I think maybe a cancer event might have been a fundraiser or something like that. And I think I'd given a little talk. This was all before my medicine days. And then we'd connected on Twitter. I found social media really good for this kind of stuff. And I still do. I actually DM'd her and I said, oh, hi, Sophie. (laughs) I've got an idea for an article about med school. What do you think? 
And she DM'd me back and she's, this is the person you emailed at the ABC. And I emailed that person at the ABC and I pitched it. Now, I've got help, obviously, because my wife is a journalist. And so she helped me kind of massage the pitch a bit. But it was up to me to secure it. So I really just reached out, having got an email address, pitched an article, and then they liked the idea. And then I wrote it. And not being a journalist, there was a, a lot of back and forth with some very good editing, which has really helped my writing. But it was really just approaching someone who I know who's in that space and who writes about those issues and seeing if they'd like my idea for an article. Everything that you've done along the way brings up two things. One, that you seem to be very proactive and go after changing anything that you think is could be improved, where most people just sit by. And two, that you just give a go at whatever you think. Yeah. I, look, the first part of that is I was just born that way. I went into conservation because I was really unhappy <laughs> with the way that animals and the environment was treated. Where that sense of injustice came from, I don't know. But this ability to want to fix it, just I could do something. I'm just one person, but I could do something to make it better. I think a lot of that comes from my mum. She's an Aussie battler in all senses. She was a single mum, raised me and my sister at times well below the poverty line. This was pre-welfare days. And she just hung in there and tried to make things better. You know, the thing that she tried to make better was the life for my sister and myself. She wanted us to have opportunities. She didn't want us to be held back. And so I think that kind of culture really affected me, that way of thinking about the world. And then you're right that the second part of that is I will reach out, have a go and lean in. And I think, you know, I need to check my privilege and my confidence here. You know, I'm a white guy. I do have an innate confidence and society has granted me a degree of privilege, which means I can reach out and do things. I understand it's not going to be easy for everybody else and the doors aren't necessarily always going to open. So I always want to caveat that there's nothing particularly special about me except that I happen to ask. And people happen to say yes, and they say yes for a few different reasons. Some of it's to do with me, and obviously some of that's to do with society. Overall, I feel like you're early on in your medical career and have already achieved quite a lot. Where do you see yourself going in the world of medicine? And do you see yourself doing more writing or any other particular things that you want to involve in your career? Well, thank you for saying that. I don't feel like I've achieved very much. <laughs> you know that? I don't know. You might have it too. I just... I feel like med school sets us up to always feel like we're not doing enough. It's because you're surrounded by the top people from school oh. that then it's the culture. You're so right. There's always a bigger goal. There's always a bigger thing you've got to achieve and you move on from one assessment to the next. It never ends. So I've got a bit of that. Yes, I've written the book and yes, I'm on a training program and I'm trying to chip away. I do see myself writing some more. I don't know what that will be about. I don't think it'll be about me. It might be time to turn my lens to maybe people like me. Since writing the book, a lot of people have reached out. I'm new to the wanting to change healthcare space, but it's been going on for decades and there are a lot of strong voices who have been working away and chipping away at making things better. And a lot of them, when they learn about how I came to medicine, disclose their own lived experience of illness. And it's nice that we normalize that and that we accept that as valid learning. You almost think it might be nice to elevate some of those stories and some of that experience in a way that, again, continues to humanize the clinician. Sounds like you've got an exciting path ahead of you. And I think you seem like the sort of person that 
you've got some plans, but you'll also be open to other opportunities. So we don't know what the world might throw at you. Yeah, I think it's true. I do, I do try and keep my options open. And to be honest with you, like I'm still trying to find my niche. I'm still trying to find where I fit. Is it patient safety? Is it patient advocacy? Is it clinician well-being? Is it system redesign? Is it quality improvement? I'm learning about all these things because the book's just basically like a giant anecdote, right? With a little bit of evidence base in it. But now it's kind of time to get about applying some of these ideas and some of this thinking. And I'm excited about all the areas I just mentioned and all the ones I don't yet know of and to (laughs) see where I might be able to best use my skills. Incredible. I'm excited to see where it takes you as well. For our final question, we ask this to everyone that comes on the podcast. If you were to pursue a career outside of medicine, and obviously for you also outside of zoology, outside of writing, what would you do? (laughs) Maybe we can include zoology, but just not the jobs that you've previously done and talked about. Now, this might be a a cheeky way of answering it, but I would be a stay-at-home dad. (laughs) <laughs> yep. And I know that's, it, it, look, I, to me, that's a career, right? That's important work. It's something that society doesn't value from men or women. But I would just, the idea of baking and cleaning up after breakfast and going to the park and doing school runs, there's just something about it that is just deeply satisfying to me. If you're going to push me on a, you know, formally recognized vocation, I think, and this might be cheating again, I think I might be a vet (laughs) and kind of combine my love of animals with my love of medicine and physiology. Yeah, it does feel like the perfect intersection of your skills. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. That was amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Ben. It's been great to chat to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast, a proud member of the Talking Health Tech podcast network. Visit the Creative Careers in Medicine website in the show notes of this episode for more resources to help you find the courage, confidence and skills to take control of your career and forge your own unique path. The Creative Careers in Medicine podcast acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognises the continuing connection to lands, water and community. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to elders past, present and emerging. 